You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down. Or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna, and this is Inverse. I'm really excited to introduce our guest for today. Uh, We've got a friend of mine, uh, the Reverend Dr. Dennis Edwards, who is currently Dean and Vice President of Church Relations at North Park Theological Seminary, after previously uh, being the Associate Professor of New Testament. He's the author of many books. Uh, One of them is First Peter in the Story of God Bible Commentary Series through Zondervan. And then he's also the author of what is the Bible and how do we understand it, which is a, also a series uh, through Herald Press. And then he's also author of a really excellent book. It's called Might from the Margins, The Gospel's Power to Turn the Tables on Injustice, also with Herald Press. And then he's got a lot of other academic essays. Uh, he's been married to Susan Steele Edwards since 1982, and they are the parents of four children and grandparents of five. Uh, Dennis has decades of urban ministry, pastoral ministry experience. I'll just name really quickly. That's the Sanctuary Covenant Church in Minneapolis, Peace Fellowship Church in Washington, D.C., Washington Community Fellowship on Capitol Hill in D.C., and New Community Church in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, Finally, just on a more personal level, he enjoys baking, uh, playing his flute and saxophone, as well as weightlifting and cycling. Uh, as much as he says he likes to joke as much as his body will allow him Um, I should also mention I've gotten to spend time with him Um, we've shared meals together we see each other at AAR conference and other spaces and I'm really grateful for him he's another anti-blacktivist out in the world causing good trouble and so uh, Dennis welcome to Inverse Podcasts Um, Drew it is a delight Uh, Jared this is uh, a real joy for me so thank you so much Oh, Dennis, we've been looking forward to this. Um, we'd love to hear the passage that you've chosen, mm. but before that, we wanted to give you an opportunity so you didn't feel rushed at the end. Mm-hmm. Is there any uh, particular um, project that you're working on at the moment that you'd like oh. to share? Or people would love to hear some of the things that Drew just outlined a little bit. Um, oh, you get to choose. That's really kind. Well, I'll try to make them overlap. I, Because mm-hmm. I've been in um, urban ministry for years, I often get asked to contribute to things there's a there'll be a book coming out with nav press um angie ward is the uh editor and i'm forgetting the title of it but i have a chapter on on um, biblical justice tracing the concept in a in a practical way from old testament into new testament i'm excited about that and then my friend lisa bowens who's a professor of new testament at uh, princeton she and I have edited a series of essays in a book we're entitling um, Do Black Lives Matter? And the subtitle is uh, Scripture's Affirmation of Black Empowerment. Um, so we it's going through the copy editing stage right now. So we're excited about that. And then the passage I'm going to read relates to a project that's also going through copy editing right now. It's a book I've written that's a a biblical theology of humility. And I try to trace that mm. concept uh, from the Old Testament into the New as well. Excellent, excellent. Well, I know folks will um, just find so much value in your writing and work. And so I definitely encourage folks to check out uh, Dennis's scholarship. It's so good. Thank you. Um, 
So on that note, though, let's set the stage. You know, one of the things we love to do is kind of set the atmosphere for our conversation. And that's uh, asking you to uh, read a text for us. And so what text have you chosen and can you read it for us? Yes, I've chosen First Peter chapter five, verses one through six. Um, yeah, I'll stop at six <laughs> and I and go ahead and read it. Good. Now, as an elder myself and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory to be revealed, I exhort the elders among you to tend the flock of God that is in your charge, exercising the oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you do it, not for sordid gain, but eagerly. Do not lord it over those in your charge, but be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will win the crown of glory that never fades away. In the same way, you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders, and all of you must clothe yourselves with humility in your dealings with one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. Amen. Yeah. I, I have so many questions about um, First Peter in, in general, but um, also your reading given your own history. But we can take a moment and actually, if you're willing, enter into your story. Um, would you invite us into some of your story by telling us when was the first time you remember encountering the Bible? Yes, thanks. I started going to Sunday school somewhere around 10 years old, and the um, I have had three older brothers and uh, three younger sisters. I still have. The youngest wasn't born yet, <laughs> or, or she was an infant when I started going. But my father just all of a sudden started taking us to Sunday school. I, I To this day, I don't know why. My mother did not go, but we went to a uh, the same denomination that my mother grew up in, which is a sort of a fringe Protestant denomination. It's hard to explain, and I won't take too much time to do that, but it's one of those groups that emerged out of the Azusa Street Revival. So it's a very charismatic group that would be close to the Church of God in Christ. We, we called our pastors elder, just like they do. Women didn't wear pants like they didn't in the Kojic Church as well. Um, a lot of rules like that. This denomination called itself holiness. And um, <clears throat> but instead of believing that speaking in tongues was a second blessing, they believe that if you didn't speak in tongues, you weren't, weren't saved. Right. Uh -huh. <laughs> so some of you have heard now more of this oneness theology. They believe there's Jesus only, not a Trinity. So hmm. the, the movement has spread and it's in some white denominations as well. But but way back then, um, it seemed like only black folks were in were in the uh, apostolic church or holiness church that we called it. So that was the formula. You had to repent, be baptized and um, speak in tongues to know that you had uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit and knew that you were saved. Um, so I encountered the Bible in Sunday school and then started learning that um, sort of doctrinal position as I got a little older, like 12 years old. In fact, I was baptized at 13. So I was in that church um, for about, uh, from about 10 years old to when I, to about 20 years old, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I could tell a lot of stories about that church. I won't right now unless you ask some stories because I, you know, I keep thinking I need to write like a <laughs> theological memoir because I've been in so many different places. But yeah. that one, but that one was formative in 
giving me sort of a passion for for Jesus, but it also confused me. And I'll tell you that straight out. I mean, I'm a kid who was interested in science and math and pretty rational. And when they told me I was going to speak in a language I never learned in school, I'm like, yes, this is exciting. But they taught me to pray in a way that I would get tongue tied. He wanted me to say Jesus, mm -hmm. Jesus, Jesus really fast or hallelujah, 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 really fast. And in my rational mind, I thought, well, that's I'm doing this. I thought God was going to be doing this. So we mm. went around on this for, oh, almost all 10 of my years. I went around at least since I was 13 to when I was 20. So at least seven years, I kept going to prayer meeting. And I jokingly say I was in church more than a normal kid should. I mean, I played football, I wrestled, and then I'd hustle, <laughs> hustled to church to be there for prayer meetings. I was in church a lot and learned a lot of scripture, memorized a lot of Bible verses, but could not figure out why God wouldn't save me. And just to make this a little salient here, this is the 70s when everybody's talking rapture and that silly movie, The Thief in the Night was out. And I mm. was seeing that and and being afraid that Jesus was going to come back and leave me behind because I hadn't spoken in tongues. I was an anxious teenager, even mm. though I was playing sports and music and trying to live a full life. I was very anxious in my relationship with God. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's powerful. Yeah, I mean, it resonates. So I did not grow up in a kind of Pentecostal holiness, but I had a lot of friends who had. Mm. And so certainly, I mean, I know some friends that it was a really powerful experience for them, but also many that kind of have shared very similar stories that echo, mm. I think, what you were saying as well. Mm. And so, yeah, that's really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious because you even mentioned like memorizing scripture and, you know, yes. I mean, just really formative. And so, as you're thinking about the Bible in particular, like, would you say you were experiencing it as something liberative or as something oppressive, as something healing, as something harmful? Was it mm. something else that doesn't fit one of those categories? <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, like, how would yeah. you uh, describe what you were experiencing as you're encountering the Bible? Uh, not liberative at all. And uh, right. wow. there, it was it was a book that I read with the hopes of understanding God. I mean, I, I came at it honestly with this, oh my goodness, literally childlike um, desire to know God and also to not mess up. Like I didn't want to mess up. And, uh, mm. and so I saw the Bible as it was going to give me the rules and the, and the uh, formula, if you will, for how to know God and how to make it through life. Um, but, but the way the Bible was preached was, more oppressive than Sunday school. Sunday school was pretty benign. You learned facts, you learned information, you learned, you know, the stories of the Old, Old Testament, New Testament, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, so I knew the, like the content, but as far as what it meant for me, it was very oppressive. I mean, it was, the church was all about rules, man. And that's, wow. that's, that's the way it was. Yeah. <laughs> So Dennis, obviously you, your way of reading the scriptures shifted from simple <laughs> questions of have you got the ghost to something <laughs> to, to something else. Yeah. Um, as you think about, I mean, not merely your pastoral ministry, but like as an academic um, yeah. with um, uh, students that um, you're helping form, um, as you think about your own hermeneutics as a gift for others, what what is that lens? What are you mm. inviting others into? How do you read the scriptures now in ways that yeah. do set pre people free as opposed to um, uh, what you grew up with initially? Yeah, well, I, I love that question, partly because you do uh, at least recognize that I try to do it differently than I, than I <laughs> in the way I grew up. And, and I think most of my students would say that. Um, so for me, 
I, I have come to this place where God's um, movement in the world is setting people free. And that's not only setting us free from the stuff I do that's wrong, but but also freeing me from the wrong that people have done to me. There's there's this sense that mm. um, that deliverance is not just deliverance from my bad habits, or that's the way it was when I was a kid. You know, you pray for deliverance mm. because somebody's got a bad habit they got to shake free of. But I'm also believing that God wants to deliver us from the oppressive stuff that sinful uh, humans and evil people do and evil structures do to us. So I mm. I see the Bible's message as one of God's outstretched arms as opposed to God's cross, you know, folded arms waiting for me to get my act together, which is the way I saw God as a kid. Mm. Now I see God like with his hands open and God's um, presence as an inviting presence. So I, I see that in scripture too. And, mm. uh, and it took me a while to get there, um, probably, you know, more in my thirties, because in my twenties, I was mostly confused trying to figure it out, going to different churches, trying, at least I didn't give up on, on the Lord. I didn't give up on church. But I, um, but it took me a long time to start to see, and and believe and feel that God is a liberative God, and yeah, yeah. I'm really curious. Like, mm-hmm. is there a particular point that you can think of that, like, like this is where at least I can see? I mean, sometimes we can't always track right the complexities of the movements. But are for you, is there a moment where you like I look back and it's. And, and it's really significantly changing in terms of my own lens or hermeneutic and how I see God in a particular moment in your life, in the journey. Yes, I, I would say it, it, it has been um, a journey, as you say, Drew. Uh, there are moments, I would put it in the plural. So there's like, if I, if I, you know, looking back, I think, oh, here was a signpost. Here's another. And one of them was during seminary. And this it's, it's a little bit strange, but I went to a pretty conservative school. I wouldn't have known it then. I just went to the only seminary that a pastor told me I should go to. And I went to <laughs> Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, TEDS, up here in Illinois. And I didn't know any better, but I was soaking up everything. I'm sitting in the front of every class trying to learn as much as I can. But I was surprised to find that many of my classmates had a very rigid, and I would even say oppressive view of humanity to the point that you know we couldn't talk about racism, couldn't talk about sexism. Now, when I say couldn't talk about it, couldn't talk about it meaningfully. I mean, I could bring these topics up, but I even had an ethics professor um, shoot back at me because I wanted to talk about racism in an ethics class. He rolled his eyes, made me look stupid in front of the class for even bringing it up because he didn't Mm -hmm. want to talk about racism. And um, so I struggled in an ethics class. Right. That's that's the thing that really gets me. But um, Uh, a a European American professor. Yes. And I'm not going to name drop. I'm old. I could drop names of people with their mouths would hang open because these are well-known people, but I'm not going to do that. But, Uh um, but this person is no longer with us anyway, but I, um, I was working security late at night. I had the 10 o'clock at night to the six in the morning shift as security guard on campus. So I'm going into the library and I'm just checking stuff as I'm supposed to. And this, this magazine caught my eye that I had never seen before. And it had caricatures of the political figures, this was 1988. So it was caricatures of political figures for the ne- upcoming election. So I pulled the magazine off the shelf and it was Sojourners. Now I know mm. Sojourners now, but I had mm-hmm. no clue what Sojourners was then. And I yeah, said, wow. oh, wait, there are people who are reading the Bible, not like my so many of my classmates. I sat there and read through like that whole Sojourners during my shift. And I said, thank you, Lord. There are mm. people here who's, who are not... Um, not they're not not all Christians are reading the Bible this way, 
So mm-hmm. it was freeing for me. And I consider that actually a seminal moment that put me on the journey to start looking and paying more attention to other voices other than the ones that were somewhat oppressive um, at, at times, even though I don't think they would have framed it as that, but it, sure. it, it felt that way and it came off that way. And I would say it is that way. Yeah. Yeah, well, God good. bless Jim Wallace and Sir Jenis, eh? Oh, you know, and then to find out later, he was also a Trinity grad. Uh, you know, he was. Persona, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. He graduated <laughs> in the 70s and he was persona non grata. They did not like him. And so what was oh, weird sure. was, was like 40 years later, he gets invited back to speak in chapel. And I wasn't there, of course. I read about it. And I said, oh, it's like it's almost like like a tone trying to atone for something you know to bring because uh-huh. jim wallace is like a big deal so you know bring him back to campus but i just thought oh that's interesting you know i don't know what he yeah. said in the chapel but i i yeah. can't imagine i wonder how it felt for him you know yeah mm. that's interesting i actually just yeah. saw him um in philly because i was at uh ron sider's memorial oh, and he was there oh, for that mm. so i got oh, to chat I'm with glad him you briefly. could go to that yeah. i had yeah had the honor of meeting ron sider in dc a couple of times and such respect for him i'm i'm sorry i couldn't be at that memorial but jim jim should know me although you know i'm name dropping like we buddies but we had a conversation he he was he was asking me about working in a church plant with him and his wife at at some point and Mm. um we've had some good conversations i did some um uh devotional chapel kind of messages up at the sojourner staff during my years in dc so i had a very warm relationship with sojourners i didn't know it was going to come to that you know back in the late 80s when i'm reading this and then by the nine late 90s i'm i'm ministering there and i thought oh this is kind of full circle but um yeah i have a lot of respect for for that ministry Yeah, yeah that's great so dennis um you know you talked about uh kind of a, a hermeneutic that moved from closed to open to a, a god that's delivering right not just from our sinful habits personally but also from the systems and cycles of violence that destroy and harm others um so as we um, come back to this first peter text right in mm-hmm. chapter five uh, with your your way of reading right uh can you begin to guide us and we can have a conversation around this text yeah. and, and kind of some of what you're seeing in there yeah. i i chose it because um it ends, at least the section I read ends with the call to humility, but on the way there, there's sort of this, um, it's a real rebuke to the way some folks have viewed leadership in church ministries. I mean, we're seeing it, mm-hmm. right, all over the mm-hmm. last several years, at least some high-powered people that, I didn't even know who these folks were, I'll be honest with you, because at yeah. some point I had kissed evangelicalism goodbye, I thought, and I right. And I didn't, and so I wasn't reading, and the dad wasn't reading these magazines. So, so people who rose up as rock stars in the early and mid 2000s, I didn't know who they were. And then when I started, and then with social media, I started seeing their names. So, so some of these people, I, 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 you know, I didn't have any time for, but I'm seeing they were a big deal, right? And then when you're watching them go through this and churches that are uh, finally being called out for abuse and such, this passage really does. Um, rebuke that. I mean, it talks about leadership in a way of Jesus. That's an, that's a, that's a caring for, it's a shepherding, it's looking over. Uh, episkopos is the word we get Episcopal from, but it means to look over, to watch over. To, so it's the notion of caring for. That, so the very posture is, I'm not doing this for money. I'm not doing mm. this because I have to. I'm not doing this because I'm trying to be boss of you. I'm, I'm, I'm with you in this. And so for me, that first Peter passage says, even leadership in the way of Jesus, the picture is of a shepherd, caring, mm-hmm. You know, truly a pastor in that word. So I, um, I really like that because um, I have tried to do that in my life, and at times get pegged as being weak because I'm not 
um, trying to boss everybody around and tell everybody mm. has to be my way. I've invited people into spaces. I had a young woman say to me, and I, this is like the best compliment I got in some ways about leadership. I was actually making a transition from a church and preparing the church for that transition. And when we talked about leadership, this young woman on the leadership team said, well, Pastor Dennis, you have led with open hands. And I just thought, oh, I love that image, leading mm. with open hands. It's like I was always, and she saw me as wanting to share because I think that's what leadership is about. And yet the models that I had and the models that seemed to get all the press were people who were, you know, little Caesars. They were dictators. They were, they wow. were people that were pushy. So this passage is a rebuke to that in my mind. Yeah, hmm. that's good. That's good. You know, I mean, I know I had, I definitely underwent a pretty significant shift and paradigm shift in terms of my understanding of pastoral leadership, mm, you know, mm -hmm. um, for me growing up and this is <laughs> named, uh, my own dad, right. And my own grandfather, I mean, were my first pastors, uh, right. Uh, um, but the paradigm was, you know, pastor's word is final, you know, pastor's word is, yes. is all, you know, there's no questioning it. Right. There's no conversation. Pastor says it, everyone falls right. in line. Right. And that's the expectation. Right. And I've seen, um, an associate pastor even give someone a hard time for even questioning, asking questions that raise doubts in terms of something that I think was off, right, that they were saying. And so, um, yeah, that for me definitely was a paradigm that I certainly, and one of the big things for me was coming into my first Anabaptist community, right, um, where there was just this complete different model of hmm. leadership. And it wasn't perfect there either. Right. But um it began to force me to ask some real wrestling questions around, mm -hmm. you know, what does leadership look like? Not that every, everything was not bad about what I grew up in, right? There were some really beautiful right, things right. that I think exactly. I've actually drawn from, same. but there were also some things I had to let go of. And same thing with the Anabaptist, like Amen. how do I engage in this overseeing, but also in creates, you know, space for dialogue and conversation and not be the know-it-all in the room, right? All of that kind of stuff. Amen. Yeah. 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 Oh, so I, I'm so with you. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well I, this, sorry, Dennis, you go. Oh, I, I was just going to piggyback on that because I'm, I'm with you, Drew. I, and I don't, I never want to like disparage the church of my childhood or um, even though it, it, uh, it was hurtful in some spaces. Yeah. But, but mm. also, I did see this zeal and I saw my pastor who also was an electrician of what we would say now is bivocational, but we weren't using fancy words like that. But then he just had to hustle, you know, right. and, and I watched that and I admired that there was something really uh, noble about somebody who was trying to serve the church and also make this living and, you know, serve his family. I just, I just found the rigidity. I wish they, you know, there was some other way that they could see, you know, could see that the rigidity of it. But so there were some good things, right? Like you said, but, um, but that way of the pastor, not question, that's how I grew up. You didn't question the pastor. You mm -hmm. didn't say, and then I saw other models like that. And it got to the point where I felt like they had some kind of special gnosis, uh, you know, and I had to find whatever that knowledge was. <laughs> and maybe that's what compelled me to, and pushed me and propelled me to, uh, to do more Bible study. Cause I said, they seem to have this special knowledge and they're like, how do I get that? You know, maybe I just have to keep <laughs> studying the Bible more. So, so that's what I kept doing. <laughs> Dennis, that's why I'm so glad we're having this discussion in the context of first Peter, because mm -hmm. uh, I think it's very possible 
for lots of our readers who may be on this journey of like entering into the liberating love we see of Jesus, that um, if they've encountered First Peter before, it hasn't been read in a way that is about the liberating love we see in the life of the Nazarene. Instead, it's um, uh, it, it creates this us-them between um, everything else that happens out there versus what happens in the church. Um, and then um, the hierarchies out there in the church, you're to model on a smaller scale. Um, and you raising um, the, the whole uh, what for Christians is a virtue of humility, which uh, often gets um, misconstrued as um, submissiveness to um, everything Jesus came to overturn, right? Like, Ooh, and so the, there's, there's ways to read First Peter where it's like, um, wives submit to husbands and all the sisters go, I have a question. Um, and not to mention like slaves submit to masters, which also features here as well. Uh, um, and um, then we get talked to um, uh, when it comes to elders that already for some people, there is a, there is a hierarchy that seems to be affirmed in first Peter that um doesn't have much to do with Peter of the Gospels, which, you know, for scholars, that is an active question as well. So uh, I say all that, Dennis, to go, would you talk us through, are we talking, <laughs> is this the bloke that hung out with Jesus? Um, uh, is this an agenda that actually looks like Jesus? And um, if so, how? Because I think for a lot of people, it's just, there's a lot of, uh, I've got two memory verses in First Peter and <laughs> I don't engage the rest. Well, Jared. There's so much in that question, man. You have to, you're going to have to make me write another book or somehow teach a seminary class. I mean, you hit on household codes. You hit on elder. You hit on, is it Peter the real author? I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there. But I'm, I'm not going to give a long answer here, but I'm going to try to address all of them. Yes, there's open debate on whether Peter is the, the Peter we know from the Gospels if he's the author or not. So it's an active debate. And so I'm not going to solve it right now, but I will say there's so much resonance with the gospels that if it's not that peter of the gospels somebody's doing a really good job of of connecting the um the peter of the gospels with with this book um there's so much we don't know i mean why is peter writing to to christians up in turkey asia minor we don't know of him doing any ministry up there so there's question marks right mm. there's questions um that uh, i i will say this that um the criticisms used to be that it reads a lot like a pauline letter particularly the so-called Deuteropaulines, and it also has good Greek, quotes so much of the Septuagint and all that they thought, how does Galilean fishermen do this? But now a lot more people are saying, you know, tradespeople were really pretty good at the other languages. They knew yeah. how to deal with people. So it's not, uh, it's not a foregone conclusion that it's not the Peter of the Gospels. Um, I, I won't keep going on the authorship one, but I will say that there's evidence in both camps and for, for some of us, it's tipping toward uh, the Peter of the Gospels. Um, a good solution, perhaps, is not just the uh, scribal solution. I mean, that's a, that's a one that we quickly pull out and say, well, there's a scribe he's writing on Peter's behalf. But I think um, Gene Green has a big book called Vox Petri, The Voice of Peter. And he argues for perhaps a Petrine circle, just like mm. with the Johannine community. You have people who are tight sure. with Peter. And that would, might explain the weirdness of Second Peter. But I'm not going into that at the moment. But come <laughs> Because it is weird compared to First Peter, yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so Dennis, but, to kind of summarize, it's, okay, it's possible for for people yes. who aren't scholars right. that um, uh, the, the Peter 
who's hanging out with Jesus. Yes. Um, is kind of like a granddaddy figure in a community. That's and while right. he might have working Greek because of like um uh, being a Galilean and scholarship, thinking that's that right. that's a possibility now. There's yep. somebody in that community that he's writing to um who who can bring it across so it sounds like more official. So the, that, the accent and work. the twang isn't there. Um and that it's that's, under that Peter's influence. Is that the kind of that's summary? a very very workable solution. I mean, because he he calls out um so uh Silas or Sylvanus, he calls mm. him out at the end. So we may very well have that piece. I'm saying it could be Peter all by himself, but it may very mm. well be that it's the Peter who's who's getting some stylistic help from his scribe. I think that's a very um, reasonable assessment for the authorship question. Um, Which is fascinating because it also looks like the kind of way that you are pastoring. So um, oh. just in the same way that this young woman um, said to you, you lead with open hands, mm. th this letter might be written with Peter as an open hand kind of leader, oh. bringing the gifts of the community to actually produce this epistle, right? Jared, I would go that far to say even Paul does that, even though we've got our issues with Paul, I, I, almost all of his openings, he's with somebody. Paul and mm -hmm. Timothy, Paul and yeah. I mean, it's almost even though he might use the first person at times, he's with people. I, I'm uh, Scott McKnight in his Colossians commentary will will argue also for a community of people who are helping to get this letter across. So it's Pauline mm -hmm. in a very uh, general sense of that word. But I would say um, uh, what you just articulated, I think, is a, is the way we should always be thinking of letters. I mean, even if they're coming in the first person, I'm thinking. It's not this image I used to have of somebody sitting in a dark room under a trance writing, you know, um, and God moving their hand, which is the way I was taught as a young person. And now I'm seeing a much more dynamic thing. I mean, what pastor wouldn't, if you're trying to help a community that you've worked with and they call you up to say, how are we going to work through this? You're going to talk to the leadership. You're not going to just yeah. talk to one person in there and try to make it all. And so you're going to confer, you're going to figure it out. And then you might, you might somewhat be the driving force perhaps uh, uh, behind the communication but i would hope that the communication is not just yours so mm. um but but we could keep on going on the authorship but you asked me a bunch of other stuff i'm, yeah, I'm going to try to tell codes yeah i'm going to take your time how we read so, first oh, peter we really i'm, I'm really yeah. interested oh, in this as well you, you guys got you, you guys hit all the buttons man and i i have i'm going to try to work through some better answers for the future because i mean uh, well, let me deal with the elder one first. It could sound hierarchical, but elder, I mean, it, it is what it is. It's old people. And we want to, we turn them into officers. And nowadays we, we are, we're less, we're less um, interested in people's age. We're more interested in their skill set. So we have people in church leadership and we say, well, we got to get this person on here. We got to get this person on here and we want to give young people a shot and so forth. And I get all of that. But the concept of elder was born out of people who had experience. I mean, mm. uh, they were the people with the gray hairs and the and the um, and the track record of having worked. So it's not because it's hierarchical. It's because they are people who've walked this journey. I had a friend today, I was talking to a friend who's lived in Africa most of his life and he's a missionary kid. <laughs> he's got mixed you know, experiences with all of that. We won't, we won't deconstruct the whole mission enterprise right now. But he said to me, Dennis, you're at this place where you'd be sitting under the tree giving the last word on stuff, he said, because that's the way we see our elders as given that wisdom and giving us the, the last word on things. And there's some cultures that respect the old age. Yes. So, so that's what Peter's talking about. He's talking about mm. people who live this journey. So he says, so you young folks pay attention is what he's saying. It's not mm. like follow the rules. We're moving away from the rules. He's saying, these are the people who are looking over your life. So pay attention. 
And so that's mm-hmm. that's kind of what he's saying. So I find that very uh, dynamic. I find that as as a helpful kind of an image. But backing up, you know, that's chapter five, backing up to three and two, chapters three and two, where you mentioned women and en- enslaved people. The household codes are problematic. I'm not going to make it easy. They're problematic. Whenever mm-hmm. a writer, and it's particularly Peter or Paul, is saying, uh, um, or Pauline writings, or saying um, for enslaved people to, to yield and obey uh, masters, and they're all in this Christian community, that's a mess. I mean, I want him to say, blow this stuff up. This is not right. Yeah. <laughs> I, w- I want him to say it. I mean, I, I'm not going to hesitate. He should have said it. Uh, Scott yeah. McKnight goes as far as to say... Paul was blind to the immorality of slavery. He didn't see it in a moral mm. category. That, he, he went that far to say that. It, it's, on a, it's on a YouTube video too. I mean, he said it straight out. He says it in his Colossians commentary. And maybe that's a stark way to shake us up a bit to say, you know, Paul's not the iner- is not the inerrant one. He's not Jesus. So Paul, mm. it, you know, he's also a citizen when Peter's not, you know, and, and maybe, maybe there is a privilege of citizenship where he's not paying attention to what all of what enslavement wow. meant. I mean, that's, that's, wow. That actually raises some issues here because he'll call himself a slave of Christ. He clearly has a concept of what it means to, to follow, um, but to not denounce it is is maybe an aspect of privilege, you know? So mm-hmm. anyway, that th- there's a lot of issues with the household codes, but Peter's thing is about survival. So I just, I want that to be clear is That's that Peter's nice. writing to people who are oppressed. So when you're oppressed, the first thing you want to tell people who are oppressed is, is this is how you survive. And you survive mm. by dealing craftily with and, and carefully with the authorities and building tight community among yourselves. So when he says to the enslaved people, you know, you got to take it. It's like what we tell our sons to keep your hands on the wheel. Right. He, it's unjust. It's unjust. Right. But you do this so to minimize the possibility that right. things will go worse. And then he says, when you do that, and here's the here's the kicker. He says, when you do it, you are more like Jesus. So he, so the enslaved people, and this is actually the theme of my Might from the Margins, is that the folks who are in the margins are actually the best exemplars of Jesus. So he mm. says, when you do that, you're walking in the footsteps of Jesus who took it and he didn't retaliate. So he's not saying it's right. In fact, in 2.19, he says it's unjust. Mm-hmm. So he's not going to bless the mess, but he is going to say to survive, you don't fight back. And and look, in pragmatic terms, they can't fight back. Right. Got, yeah, got, sure. Got small Christian community in big, powerful Rome. Rome doesn't tolerate dissension. So so if you want the community to survive, you 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 don't fight back, at least not in a physical way. You fight back by loving one another and loving your neighbors in a way that's radical, hence the radical Anabaptist. You wind up showing the way of Jesus radically without um without the fist. Now, this is not to say that the times are the same in the first century as they are in the 21st century. I'm not going to argue that. But I would say that in their world, the best thing to do was to strengthen their own sense of community and trust Mm. that God is going to use them as examples. And and similarly with the women who have they're not they may be citizens, but they have lesser status than their husbands. Yet Paul Peter says to them. You can win over, and he says it literally that way, you can win over your husbands, he says, without words. I find that so remarkable because evangelicals Mm. tend to be very wordy and they think you can't, you know, somebody (laughs) can't be one to faith unless you give them a lot of words. And if you don't, if they're not coming, then give them more words and change the words, but give them more words. And he says, you can win them over without words. So the women now, 
become the best examples of what it means to share the gospel without words. And so they become our evangelist examples because what it's saying is that the text, the text is saying that you do this by the way you live. And even when he says words like quiet, this is not, I think that's a bad translation. The, a better hmm. translation is tranquil. The idea is Ooh. that your spirit is at peace. Hmm. He also talks about having fear, but it's fear of the Lord. So he says the way you're going to approach your unbelieving husband, who has all the power in the patriarchy, patriarchal society, is you approach your husband with this reverence for God and with a peaceful spirit, and you can win him over. So that, mm -hmm. that, to me, that's a powerful lesson of evangelism, because sometimes we got folks who just want to talk, 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 and think that they can win the day, when maybe what we need to do is be quiet and, pay and, and live this life of tranquility and reverence for God and love for each other that starts to win over some folks because they say, whoa, those folks aren't fighting the way we fight. So, mm. so I think Peter can be read that way because I think that's actually what's happening. But again, it's a survival mode. It's not necessarily because 21st century, I have the freedom, at least relatively so, to make my voice heard in the public square that these Christians did not have. So I don't mm -hmm. want to make a one-to-one -one correspondence. I want to say contextually, they have to be careful. So Peter gives them a formula for survival. He even says, honor the emperor. Like, don't, 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 you know, trouble, the, trouble things here for yourselves. Right. But mm. you love the brotherhood or right. that's, mm. that's one translation brotherhood, but you know, your siblings, you love mm -hmm. them. And um, a, a, even though you might honor the emperor, you're going to love the people of God. So yeah. anyway, that, yeah. Yeah, no, that's really good. I remember. So when I did my MDiv, mm -hmm. I was in an MDiv cohort that was uh, predominantly African-American, right? So we got mm -hmm. all black folk and we took this first Peter class together for you. And I remember just the hot debates that we were having over this text. But our professor was, I think, trying to get at some of what you're getting at now, right? Okay. In terms of reading it, uh, his argument was, think of it as a missional kind of and survival kind of strategy. Yeah. And so it's yeah. kind of echoing somewhat of what you're, I'm hearing from you as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. That you got to put them in their context. You got to understand right. the, the challenges that they're confronting they don't live in the same world that we live in. Right. And so you got to, and, and even as you were talking, you know, I remember, um, what was it? A couple of years ago, we were taking a walk. My family was taking a walk around the block mm. and there was um, a police officer, you know, everything was tense and there was a police officer who had pulled over some black person. So I just stood there. Right. I was like, we're stopping. So I'm just watching. And my wife, she's like, Drew, is this the example you want to set for our kids? Like this might get them into some trouble mm. in the future. And at that time I was like, oh yeah, that's what we're doing, right? But I mean, any any given day, like I probably would give different advice, right? At that moment, I'm mm -hmm. like, we gotta, we're gonna let them know that there's eyes on him. But mm. other days, like I don't actually probably want my kids to just feel like they can do that anytime. Yeah, Because that's dangerous, right? Especially good not point. without me there or whatever. I don't, you know, there's times where I'm like, you mind your business, put your head down and keep on moving yeah, sometimes. Yeah, right. Yeah. And oh. so that's the tension. It's, it's that's not always exactly right. right. It's these really complex situations that people are navigating. So I can, I can yeah. appreciate those complexities that first Peter, I think is navigating within the Roman Imperial context. Yeah. Mm. Drew, I really like that example because it's not a, it's not a one rule or one size fits all. Yeah. And it's right because my sons who are now adults and like your age now, they, um, they have uh, 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 
they can they can be in that space to to um if they got to pull out their camera and deal with it you know they could be in that space when they were kids i would not have wanted them i might have wanted them to see from a distance but i wouldn't have wanted them to get into anything that could be viewed as confrontational because they have had their share already as young men now they've had their share of getting profiled getting pulled over uh i mean i've had my share it's so there's this sense of uh I think, you know, if we could step back for a moment and say, in the long run of all of that, when you don't retaliate, while it can appear weak, and uh, and we want to be like, you know, that that movie with Jamie Foxx a few years ago, Django, you know, where an enslaved person fights <laughs> back, and it's a pretty violent movie because he, he fights back, you know, and we like we want that, we want the we want the underdog to revolt and get and and pay people back, but that really isn't the way of Jesus. And when no. we and in the long run, when we look at folks who manage to uh, hold a certain, I don't know, tension or, or, and keep some integrity in the midst of this, there, there, there's something noble about it, but I don't want to cast that as weak. I don't want, I I want to, I I want that to be seen as, 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 as a very strong position. Um, you know, just on a quick, a quick illustration here, the, um, the, the, there's a famous, and you might know it from church history, uh, exchange of letters between the emperor and the governor of this region. Uh, Pliny and Trajan. So they have these yeah. letters go back and forth, right? And 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 we have in there the governor's asking the emperor, like, what do I do with these people? And he says, you know, they kept the rules. They've been doing what I tell them to do. He says, in fact, I just grabbed two women slaves that were called deacons. He said, or deaconesses, it's some translations. He said, and I beat them. You know, basically on principle. You know, it just that's the kind of freedom Rome had. Mm. Is this I'm gonna snatch a couple of them and just beat them on principle? So. If that's their reality, then wh- wh- how could we expect them to rise up and overthrow even a regional government in Rome? So this is so Peter's giving survival advice, and that's the way I really want to emphasize it. Yeah. Because sometimes we take it and say, "Oh, he's just being weak. Why can't?" And we think it's America, you know. And uh, it, it's and, and on that note, like, and, and that's where I think uh, many womanist theologians, right? Mm-hmm. When you know the masculine, like it's always liberation. It's always liberation. Like, eh, sometimes it's survival, right? Survival and existing right. and having yeah. a world where your 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 offspring can actually live into, right? Like yeah. that also matters. Um, and so it's a powerful, right? It's not a like you said, it's not weakness. Um, it's actually a courageous move to decide I'm going to live, and my people are going to live on, and we're gonna you know wait for the right timing. Uh, to maximize our freedom mm. down the there road. There you go. Well yeah. said. Well said. And Amen. this is what I find so powerful about Dennis you reframing eldership not as a position, uh, but acknowledgement. Uh, so how um, the the term elder would work in most Aboriginal um, communities um, on this land we now refer to as Australia is it's not something you bestow on yourself. It's something that the community recognizes in you, and I you like start that. to be called. Um, uh, uncle or auntie because yes. the community actually recognizes that in you and if if there are cultural parallels happening here um th- this isn't about um uh how to lord power over others um effectively in the situation right. of oppression instead yeah. um here's the embodied wisdom and yes. even the the um, passage uh, you've chosen um he, here's peter um uh, saying uh, to those of us who have been named by the community as embodying this wisdom, because we're at this stage uh, of life, yes. um, here's my reminder to you. And what I love about that is it not merely reframes um, uh, 
like eldership as um something that's recognized by the community away from like a position of power but it also gives us permission like um to um to borrow something from uh, both your um traditions the the expression sanctified imagination to engage the text in this way well this is the peter who has always struggled with like his temper this is the peter who was packing heat when the, they came to arrest our lord and got my peter, sword <laughs> that's right here's peter as an elder and everybody in this community knows this about peter knows how he's responded and to go to drew's example the, the reason why um drew's kids are looking to um uh drew in these situations is because they've got examples of well dad in this situation did this but dad in this exactly. situation did yeah. that because dad is someone who's learning wisdom has become a discerning person yeah. and i want to be in like schooled and formed and embody that that's a different oh, yeah. way of approaching this text because yeah. suddenly survival is an act of subversion um, rather than it being like acquiescence to how domination works in the world. Oh, well said, man. I really well said. I appreciate you sharing from Aboriginal cultures too, because I um I don't know that firsthand, but I would imagine his resonance with with my and Drew's experience here in the, in in the states, and then also with other oppressed and marginalized people. Um, mm -hmm. Something else that you uh, made me think of, Jared, is that. When Peter opens up this section, he says, yeah, I'm a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And I yeah. find that remarkable because, you know, he saw Jesus raised from the dead, too. But yeah. in, in our triumphalist, maybe American, North American way of thinking, we would say, and I saw Jesus, you know, he, he doesn't do that. He says, I saw him suffer. And yeah. uh, so this, this is the frame I'm coming from. You have a Lord who also suffered. And so, mm. so, when, I, so when I tell you, about this look i'm i'm an old guy now too and i saw our lord suffer so but i know how it ends you know it's sort of like that's embedded in there it's like i know how it ends but i saw him suffer and i think you can make the appeal from a triumphalist way or you can make the appeal from this down to earth way that says our lord walked that journey and he knows what it feels like so there's a certain solidarity there in the suffering that um that we miss when we jump to the triumphal moments we miss that uh that our Lord suffered. So I think yeah. Peter frames it that way too. Yeah. Yeah. The beautiful that the the suffering, the story of Christ literally aligns and overlaps with their lived experience and stories and journeys. Amen. Right? And I wow. think that's, that's that's the cross and the lynching tree, right? That's, that, that's stone, right. That brother, I was gonna go there. That's yeah. good, man. Yes. Thank yeah. you. That's you know? exact. I appreciate that. Yes. Yeah. And and I think, yeah, it's for all oppressed people, right? Right. Um, that somehow. Right. Um, they know that God in Jesus Christ, that his story um, has aligned in ways that gives significance to their own stories, even in times yes. when we're frustrated, where we feel helpless, we're like, God, what's going on? No, all of a sudden now there's agency because you're Amen. participating in a much bigger, significant story. Yes. Um, oh, yeah, man. We so well said. I, I have an essay in the Journal for the Historical Jesus. I, I didn't have a long time to write it. I got invited in late in, in the stage in it. So I had to be a quick turnaround. But what I but it was in honor of the 70th anniversary of Jesus and the Disinherited by Howard Thurman. Mm. So and Drew saw it at some point. What I tried to connect um um Jesus and the Disinherited to First Peter. Wow. Because yeah. because yeah. because I see almost exactly what you were saying That's right. in terms of the story yeah. of marginalized folks who still hang on to this suffering savior 
and yeah. and don't throw it all out the out the window. Uh, and there's something that's powerfully redemptive in that. Um, yeah. Anyway, I mean, there's a lot we could say about that, but I I find that hopeful. I I often tell the story, and I think I do in in the book too about my great aunt because she's a paradigm for me of mm. of many of that generation before me who um made did the great migration came up from the south got mm -hmm. jobs up in the north they were they were fleeing oppression down there um i mean lynchings all kinds of craziness and and evil and and um so the movie the help came out at some point you know after the novel and the movie came out and i was talking to my great aunt on the phone i had already moved from dc to to um i'm sorry i had moved yeah from dc to minnesota but but for 18 years, I lived in D.C. and I got to hang out with her quite a bit. And, and my kids got to see her almost like a grandmother. Um, she was my mother's aunt, great, a great aunt. Anyway, uh, the, the quick part of the story is that she was um, when we talked about the movie, she said her own grandkids were trying to get her to see it. And she says to me, she said, Dennis, why do I want to see that movie? She said, don't hmm. you know, all the females in your family, that was her word, females in your family did domestic work for black people. And that that's. Mm. every all the women and mm -hmm. uh at least in that generation my mother's generation and her generation right and and uh and there was something there was something so powerful and then when she died a few years later and i was at a funeral the the, the eulogy was given by a federal judge who uh was retired i mean he was already older but he was uh the first she was the first person that held him you know in in her arms besides his mother basically saw him grow up his whole help to raise him and he gave the eulogy and he said how, you know, just how much she was living this gospel of Jesus. And everybody in there was like resonating with amen, because it wasn't yeah. just the thing that you say because somebody died. It was because, oh, yes, she really did live this way. And I thought mm. the irony that we're in D.C., the city, the most powerful city, perhaps in the world, where people keep trying to get close to the Capitol. And they think we can be more godly if we can get some folks to be around presidents and, and politicians. And I'm yeah. saying... Oh, you want to see godly? You talk to the maids and the cooks and the Come people on. that you walk past that mm. were that are cleaning up those buildings on Capitol Hill because they're living out a faith that's like Jesus, and these people are playing games. So wow. I just thought, so I look at her as like an example of of the kind of people I think Peter is trying to tell us. You got enslaved people and women who are on the bottom of society, and they are the ones that are 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 viewed as more most like Jesus. That's powerful. Wow. That's powerful. So powerful. Yeah, that preaches. That's good. Yeah, That's amen. Good. Wow. That's good. I, I think I think one of my my favorite things I'm taking away from this conversation is um, th thinking about Peter at the end of his life as a Thurman kind of figure, hmm. um, and and thinking about um, who Peter's pastoring to, being people like your your great aunt or, or your mother, your your grandmother. Um, Dennis. Um, and, and it's also fascinating to go all the way back to um, what you shared of your early experiences of church and um, the sociological reasons that certain types of legalism appeal mm. to people on the margins, I think, yeah. um, often get completely dismissed until um, these uh, your families and your neighborhoods, and you understand that when it comes to alcohol, when it comes to, you know, a, a whole bunch of different stuff, why certain communities would have such hard and fast rule, even right. around things like um, do women wear dresses or pants, right? right. Yeah, um, good point. And when you locate it in that community, you um, you can have a pastoral heart towards that kind of thing and yet see that that won't help um, survival long-term 
or liberation long term. And then it's fascinating to see what Peter is talking about, because he isn't talking about lengths of um, uh, dresses and, he, and he's not um, talking about um, uh, who's consuming alcohol or not, but he is talking about the kind of long view when it comes to suffering because you're choosing to be part of a community that's holding an alternative story and mm. what it is to actually build a space in the midst mm. of um, a society that allows no space for you for an alternative to yeah, grow. Yeah. And that is fascinating to me. That, that, that I think is really exciting. That's that's really good, man. There's uh I like the way you broke that down because there's there's a book by um uh Elliot is his last name, two L's and two T's. He's a premier scholar on first Peter. And he had written a book called uh, Home for the Homeless. And it's sort of this mm. so, social, socio-rhetorical commentary on First Peter. I mean, so it's, so it's a thing about, it's not just the commentary, you know, the verse by verse thing. It's more like looking at the social uh, context yeah. a lot. But what you did there is you, you, you connected it, I think, in a better way to the experience, lived experience of marginalized communities. I hadn't actually thought about the rules in any pragmatic way. And I grew up with all of that. I just, I just grew, I just, I just dismissed it all as legalism. But when you said that, it started making me think about chapter three, when Peter says, you know, braided hair and jewelry and all this stuff. Mm. And we, and we start to, we meaning a lot of contemporary Christians will say, see, my church did this. They read that and say, women can't wear jewelry. They can't wear makeup. They can't wear braids in their hair and cornrows were a big style in the 70s when I was coming up and yeah. when women came there I, so I remember seeing the pastor denounce a woman for wearing uh oh, cornrows because oh, she's because you're not supposed to do braided hair he was missing the point clearly because Peter is saying those aren't the things that are gonna like define you but those are like cultural things that you would might you might immediately do to try to get acceptance in that larger mm. gentile world right but he's saying that's not the way you're going to win your husband so don't win him to the faith rather so this mm. is so it's the, it's it's your it's without words but it's your tranquil spirit to god so i i hadn't actually connected the behavioral things to um to having practical reason you know reason form but you just did that when you talked about like alcohol and maybe you know tobacco and other things that kind of can hurt communities you gave a, a, a kind of a pragmatic reason for those prohibitions that I actually didn't think about when I was a kid. It was just mm -hmm. like, you just can't do that stuff. You know? <laughs> yeah. wow. So I appreciate that. I, I can definitely resonate with Jared's point. Cause I remember, um, so grow up, you grow up in the church, mm -hmm. you go off, right. You have this more liberated understanding, right. Right. You come back. <laughs> right. So I actually, I, my, my second pastoral position was actually at my home church. Right? Okay. Okay. So there I am. I've changed quite a bit. I got different understandings around things. So I remember um, this other pastor from seminary invited me to go get drinks, right? So we go to a bar and while I'm there, I see um, one of the young, uh, young guy who had an addiction problem mm -hmm. and he's there at the bar. And at that moment, I was like, I'm not drinking, I'm getting a Coke, right? <laughs> and all of a sudden I was like, all oh, this is out the window because I don't know, like within his paradigm and his lived experience, yeah. that's not going to be helpful for him. Right. No, um, and so even in that that's moment, even though like it wasn't because I didn't believe I could, I didn't think, right. you know, but I was like, is this going to be helpful? So oh, I, I began to feel the tension between, you know, like I know 
in seminary, especially a lot of the white kids uh, in seminary, it was all about like, everybody's doing, you know, uh, theology on tap, right? That was a big thing. Everybody's <laughs> doing that, theology on tap. And that's cool. That's fine. Yeah. But like, when you have lots of folks who've got addictions, right. right? Like yeah. that doesn't seem contextually sensitive to, so like, Amen. how do we navigate Amen. multiple things, right? It's the yeah. a more liberated understanding that isn't rigid, but also how do we actually help people get free from these things that they're captive to also, man, right? See, Drew, so yeah. Man, Drew, see, that's it though. But that's, that's the ethic of love because we're, right. saying, we're saying if I care about my sisters and brothers, I, I mean, that's Paul. I got yeah. freedom, but I'm not going to use my freedom just to satisfy my flesh. I mean, I got sisters and brothers who are dealing with stuff. So I, I got to pay attention to that. So I'm, I, I have found sometimes that whole freedom thing as a smack. Uh, uh, I, I, I think it sometimes needs to be uh, checked because I've mm. seen that too. It's like once we figured out we could drink alcohol, well, let's go crazy and and um, and have uh, everything, you know, around a brew or something. And, I, and I'm and i a fan of craft beer. I like craft yeah, beer. I mean, I, me I, too. It, it, was, it, was, it wasn't My a thing. My pastor I, has know. taught me the fine... <laughs> fine nuances of craft beer because he's like hardcore like so right, right so like, i just i'm a simple beer drinker and it's my pastors helped me you know learn the more the finer things of craft oh beer. my goodness but, I, we got stories on that too man right. <laughs> but that would never fly right in my home church right. but i think Same. there's something meaningful to learn i've learned right. from both of these communities right mm. in terms of yes. like you said it's about loving your neighbor right and, and i think that that's Amen. really significant yeah that's so good oh i i like that man that that, yeah, that that and, and too. maybe that's what um, our Thurman in this text, um, Elder mm. Peter, uh, yeah. Uncle Peter, we might say. Um, <laughs> I like in, that in my context here. Uh, Uncle Peter is wouldn't use um, uh, the frame of love, but humility, right? Yeah, humility. And so humility right. is actually um, yeah. not me, but us. Yeah, and so right. um, right. my decision making um, and submitting ourselves to one another, it isn't. Um, it, it's a pushback against an individualism that my freedom can come at the cost of others, despite That's right. others. Instead That's right. Of, um, I, I'm free that others can be free as well. And Amen. Drew, your decision making um, in that pub or that bar um, at that moment uh, wasn't me. It was the right. humility of us. And yeah. so you looked at right. that brother and you went, what's going to make us free? Yeah. And it, is that not what, um, uh, yeah. for the young fellas in this text, that um, uh, Uncle Peter is actually encouraging us? He's going, no, 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 like, this is together. You, man, yeah. you got it, brother. I, I wish I had, I should have consulted you before I finished my manuscript. You you preaching my, my uh, humility <laughs> book right there. I mean, seriously, it's like, yeah. I mean, it's, it's many times I hear people talk about humility. One of the things that they seem to quickly want to do is to uh, make sure we don't see it as too much self self-deprecation. You know, we're very careful to couch that because we're afraid, you know, we're going to get treated like doormats. And I said, you know, humility isn't that I'm fearing to be treated like a doormat. It's that I'm concerned that other people are treated like doormats. Yeah, you know I mean, this right. is That's this so is good, this yeah. is the thing, and it's it's sort of we keep worrying about how people are going to view me, how they're going to. That's humility is is what you just said. It's the us, and you said it so well. Shoot, I'm going to have to get you a manuscript, and you hope you and see if you can endorse this thing, man, because you just <laughs> you just you just preach like a couple of chapters of my book, man. It's like. <laughs> But but in all seriousness, that's that's what it's about, and 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 our, and our very kind of um, I don't know, uh, in a in a good way, we've been in our society being starting to be healthier about how we think about ourselves, to be mindful, to pay attention to how we're feeling and things. 
But there's times when I think people can be so introspective that they are wanting to protect so much that they miss the beauty of the us mm. and the we, you know, and uh, because we're so busy trying to protect the me. And I get that because society is rough. I mean, so I get it. It's not like I'm even critical. But what I'm hoping is that when more of us embrace uh, the humility of the, of the we, of the us, of the of the neighbor, that we could actually be those radicals that we're supposed to be, that mm -hmm. would be like Peter. I mean, look, if the folks that Peter's writing to were, uh, I'll say Gentile, there's non-Jewish people, um, sometimes it's translated pagan, which I don't think is the best translation, but, but, um, but they're not Jews. Even mm. though he uses a lot of Old Testament references, some people thought, oh, he must be writing to Jewish people. But he says, you know, that you used to run with people this way. And now they, they're wondering why you don't run with them that way anymore. Mm. There's a sense that they that these are people who've been converted from some from a way of life to something else. Right. They're following Jesus now. And as followers of Jesus, they can't engage in some of the debauchery and demeaning acts of the past. Yeah. But they still have to function. They still have to go to the market. They still have to do in society. And now they're getting ostracized. They're getting mm. marginalized. So Peter says, I'm going to give you wisdom on how to build your community and protect yourself and be safe and all of that. But the reality of it is we have brothers and sisters who weren't like, you know, wearing big Christian togas saying, um, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus and, you know, and I and I should rerun in this country and, you know, the kind of stuff, the way, mm. the way I'm seeing it here in America. It's it's uh, it was people who said, you know what, if we love each other and we are ready to give an answer for the hope that's in us, this is, you know, mm -hmm. 3, 15, and we can do that. One of my first memory verses. <laughs> we can do that with, <laughs> with reverence and respect. Then we're on this journey of winning folks over um, in a way of G in a Jesus like way. Yeah. Again, it's not passive in a sense of weak, but it's um, it's it's allowing the spirit to be the. The, the, yeah. the real agent the real force you know yeah yeah that's so good this has been wow, good dennis man. i knew oh, it was gonna be so good, good but this is this is, this was a lot more fun than i thought it was going to be this is great <laughs> no <laughs> well, dennis, we'd, we'd love to have you you back um you're yeah. a great fit for um <laughs> what our heart is this has been a lot of fun well, i enjoyed it and, Thank and you i so think much. people are really going to appreciate that uh, a liberating reading of first Peter. I think that mm -hmm. uh, it's going to be really Amen. helpful for a lot of folks Amen. who I think we're trying to figure out how to navigate, right. How to read these, these chapters um, yeah. when they feel yeah. so restrictive and yeah. all of a sudden now, I think you've given a different angle into helping yeah. not only just yeah. that chapter five, but the whole book, I think people are yeah, going to read it in a different that, lens right. now. So uh, yeah, amen. I appreciate that, that. Thank you. Amen. Dennis, if people are looking for you um, and they want to follow up, uh, what, what's the best way for people to find you online? Well, I'm I'm Rev Dr. Dre pretty much everywhere. R-E-V-D-R-D-R-E. -R -E. <laughs> I have a website, RevDrDre.com. I'm Rev Dr. Dre on Twitter and on Facebook and on Instagram. So, yep, Rev Dr. Dre, easy to find. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, and do you have a few moments to hang around for questions? For Oh, yeah, that would be that'd great. That would be great. Let, well, um, let's... Uh, wrap up the official part of the podcast now. This next part, Dennis, will be for our patrons, so um, people who want to... Th this is the uncut version. This is the extended end. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse. <laughs>